Yes, hello. It's me, your pal, Jason Louve. And I have a very special treat for you today. This podcast is a remaster of what is probably my most popular podcast of all time. It's called Black Magic versus White Magic. And I recorded it all the way back in 2016 or maybe even 2015. And in this podcast, I talk about what those terms really mean and answer the great eternal age-old question. Is there really such a thing as black magic? Is there really such a thing as white magic? How are they different? Do they fight? Are they secretly BFFs? What's the deal here? I wanted to remaster this one and put it back out because A, it's really freaking good, and B, people really love it, and C, the audio was really bad in the old version because I recorded it like five years ago. And it deserves better. So we've resurrected it from the vaults, dusted it off, polished it up, and brought it back to you because the material in it is is really, really important. And I, I did it in, you know, a bit of an inspired moment or a confluence point of my life. And since we don't get to repeat these confluence points, uh, why try and reinvent the wheel when I can simply bring you back the real deal? So... It doesn't need much more introduction than that. It's a timeless and eternal subject. But I do just want to say, did you catch The Midnight Gospel on Netflix? I hope you did. It was awesome, wasn't it? It was really, really amazing. I didn't know anything about it uh, prior to watching it. I mean, I did a bunch of writing on it. And of course, I'm in an entire episode. So episode five, if you haven't seen it yet, is completely dedicated to a discussion about the Tibetan bardo realms between me and Duncan Trussell, the show creator and everyone's favorite person ever. And I was extremely touched watching it. I kind of sat there on the couch Uh, I hadn't seen it before the show came out. And in fact, I hadn't seen it for the entire week the show was out just because I've been dealing with crazy stuff. And I finally got to watch it and I was very touched. I sat there and it was surreal. Duncan had somehow managed to draw out some of the most important things that I've been trying to tell the world for it seems like 20 years, banging my head against the wall. He, he, He drew out some of the really core important stuff and then put it in a cartoon that the whole world is watching. Phenomenal. He's a he's a wizard, that Duncan. Phenomenal. And I just kind of sat there in, I suppose the, the phrase is exhausted relief. Exhausted relief. Because, wow, my message kind of got out there to the world in a really big way. I'm really proud of that. And exhausted because of, <sighs> I've just been pushing for so long. And then finally, it's like, wow, I really successfully taught dharma in this incarnation. I've successfully expressed the dharma to a large group of people. And I'm very proud of that. So I was very touched and kind of in a glow and really happy. And then of course that wore off like half an hour later because we're human and you know, we life goes on. But for a brief moment there, I was in bliss. And I felt like I had not a care in the world because I had I had succeeded. I had at least partially discharged my bodhisattva-like duties. I'm happy about that. It's a nice compliment, I have to say, after uh, Genesis's passing. I'm sure Genesis would be happy about it. So, if you haven't seen it, you should definitely see it, because it's freaking awesome. And, of course, after you watch it, I have all kinds of great goodies for you to follow on from that introduction. 
Magic.me, as you know, is full of the best instruction on the planet in magic mysticism and meditation. And as I mentioned before in the last episode, but I mention again now, the Adept Initiative course and the Fortuna Working are both reopen. The Adept Initiative is, in a sense, my life's work. It's a tremendous, tremendous educational course. It is the ultimate master training in magic, real-world results magic, magic that you can use right now, this moment, where you are sitting now, to phenomenally improve the quality of your life. And I have had so many messages, I get more messages every day from people who have made massive career transitions, who have taken on uh, great new responsibilities in a positive way, who many, many people have written in that they have completely turned around their financial situation, that they have met the person of their dreams. One person got a gig uh, drawing, uh, doing comics for a major comic book publisher, his dream job, and, and all that he had done was the magic necessary to get out of his own way, which he learned in this course. All the teacher can hope for is the success of their students. It makes them very happy. It makes me very happy. And these messages keep coming in every day. A lot of them are listed on the site for the Adapt Initiative now. So if you go to the Adapt Initiative, you'll see what people are saying about the course. So don't take it from me. Take it from the many hundreds now of people who have taken this course and have turned their lives around on a dime. Not that maybe their lives didn't need turning around, but that they took their life to the next level. We all stagnate from time to time. I certainly have at times. And sometimes we need a big kick in the pants to get to the next level. And that's when you reach out for coaching or you reach out for a peak experience to kick you to the next level. But why bother rock climbing, going to the Andes to take ayahuasca, or doing some crazy thing like attaching a parachute to a Tesla and driving it off a cliff and then the parachute opens up and you softly glide down to the beach and say, aha, I've had my peak experience. I don't know where the hell this, I just pulled this shit out. No need to bother with something like that. Just take the Adept Initiative and you will see your whole life flash before your eyes in a positive way and you'll be able to realign it to your true will, which is what that course is all about. And the point of the course is not just to discover and enact your true will, but to give you the material resources you need to do so, which we all need more than ever. There is just a phenomenal amount of material in that course on money magic, wealth magic. What that really means is not greed. It means building a stable and secure foundation in life, which you cannot do, by the way, just to get money, which I teach people in the course. Here's a little bit of a free snippet for you. People always approach the topic of wealth magic from the idea of, oh, I'm going to do some process to manifest a bunch of money. And that doesn't necessarily mean actual magic. It could mean I'm going to do some life process to get a bunch of money. I'm going to start a side business just for the money. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z just for the money. And it never works out ever or not very well. Or if it works out, they're not happy. Why? Because the only successful wealth magic you can do is that which is rooted in your true will, because you only have finite time. So the universe from its infinite resources will bring you the exact resources you need to fulfill your will. All right, but only if it is your true will. Otherwise, you know, you're just shuffling things around and it's you're building on sand to mix metaphors. Now, if you discover your true will, which is what this course is dedicated to, your true purpose in life, then wealth and abundance and all these things flow naturally. They flow out of your 
groove that you're in is you manifest your true will, your true self, your, your true purpose for being into the world. And it's different for everyone. So we can't just give everyone a blanket, you know, one size fits all solution. We have to give you the technique so that you can find your true will, be sure, be firmly rooted in it, find a foundation in it, and then manifest your, your kingdom, right? And everything flows from that. So we turn the lights on in this course, and then we give you the tools that from the position of having the lights on, you can now manifest the life of your dreams. And boy, howdy, it's a real good time to do that right now, isn't it? Yes, things are very scary. The economy is, don't even get me started, but it's in times like these of maximum pessimism and fear, those who sow the seeds of the future will be reaping the fruits long to come by the time that everyone else is just starting to catch up. In addition to the Adams Initiative, I have made available the Fortuna Working. A working is not just a ritual, it's a series of rituals. It's like a boot camp of ritual after ritual, after yoga process, after journaling effort, after financial process. It's just this huge boot camp of material to just manifest money, right? Now you want to do that in line with your true goal, and that's why we have the Adapt Initiative. So those two things work very synergistically together. Right. Of course, you can take either one on its own. And the Adapt Initiative, even on its own, contains a tremendous amount of financial information. Take them together, and you will have everything you need, and then some, and then a lot more on top of that, to manifest wealth, abundance, and the life of your dreams in a way that is happy, because it's from you, not just what you think you should do to be successful, which is what everyone does in life, unfortunately, but it's also what they do when they get into these workshops or when they approach uh, money magic and things like that. They think that if, oh, well, if I just have the paper tokens, the magical symbols, then I will be happy. No, money will not make you happy. Wealth will make you happy. Uh, lack of it will make you unhappy. But having wealth that is in line with your spiritual core, now that is what we need in the world, right? Because then you can do your, you can, you can, improve everything around you by fulfilling your purpose. And then you can truly help if you're so called to. So it's the Adept Initiative and the Fortuna Working. Take one, take them both, take them one after the other, take them at the same time. Hey, it's a good time for it. Dive in. Be honest with yourself. How many movies have you watched? How many video games have you played? How much have you had to drink? How much have you just slept in? And I've done all the same shit. So I'm, you know, <laughs> believe me. But if you just took all this free time that you have now and dedicated it to this one course, which takes between 40 and 70 hours, depending on how much effort you put into it, or you can stretch it out longer, right? If you really go for it and the results will just build exponentially in that case. It's the same amount of time as a Netflix binge or a major video game. So, hey, instead of playing Red Dead Redemption 2 again, why don't you take the Adept Initiative and see the life of your dreams manifest before your eyes spooling out into infinity and spooling out into the future for decades to come as you reap the rewards of the work that you can do right now, this instant, this week. You can complete it all in a week. And it works better that way because you're in immersion. You can completely rewire your own nervous system in a week if you fully dedicate yourself to it. And when will you ever get the chance to do something like that again until you are, thanks to these courses, 
independently financially free and can set your own schedule and do whatever you want then you can do it but until then when is the next chance that you're going to get this much downtime well better hop on it it truly is a phenomenal course it is my life's work it touches me to see people love their lives and and to watch people open up from these techniques and it is deeply fulfilling to me to present these techniques to people so that they say oh that's magic yeah that's magic and look it just worked it just worked in a heartbeat there you have it all right and with no further ado here is black magic versus white magic It's Jason Liu. This is the Ultra Culture Podcast. So for this one, I just wanted to do a solo podcast. And for this one, I wanted to talk about a very specific topic that I hear people talking about a lot and which always comes up with the subject of magic. People have a lot of misunderstandings about magic. Um, they when you When you say the word magic particularly if you're really goofy and you spell it with a K like I do, people immediately have all these associations that come into their mind. They think about, uh, they might think about Dr. Faust or H.P. Lovecraft or all of these kind of horror movie associations that people have with magic. Or most people probably just think it's really silly and they they get images of kind of uh, uh, Wiccan kids at the mall food court playing Magic the Gathering and waving uh, bow staffs around and that type of thing. And generally they think when you talk about magic, their assumption is that you're uneducated and that you don't have a modern scientific-based education. And nothing could really be further from the truth. In my life, Many of the most in, intelligent, brilliant, questioning, and creative people that I've met have had an interest in the subtle powers of the mind and certainly of kind of the, the more subtle ways of looking at reality or more mystic ways of looking at reality. Because if you think about it, and I'm sure you have before, the thing that unites the most brilliant minds in the world is a quest to understand the unknown and a quest for more, a quest for understanding more than the general workaday world. You know, in our culture, we are expected to grow up, go to school, uh, get a job, maybe work our way up, raise a family. And of course, none of that is particularly stable or solid for anybody anymore. Um, all of that has kind of been thrown into turmoil by the uh, the uh, accelerating rate of technological change and social change, and certainly the economic crisis. But regardless, people are kind of sold a very limited view of reality and what they can be. And one thing, and I think that the thing that brilliant people that I know have in common is that they're not satisfied with that. They want something more for themselves. They want to understand reality. And they know that uh, because by studying history, they know that there's no way that we can know everything about reality. They know that all of the great um, thinkers of history have been heretical thinkers. And they're just not satisfied with the current view of reality as it's presented. So I think that an interest in the unknown or the mystical is, is very healthy 
and very common among people who are unorthodox thinkers. But the second thing that people think about when they uh, are confronted with the idea of magic is this kind of uh, scary image that magic is something taboo, that it involves trifling with forces that you don't understand, that it will bring darkness and woe into your life. Um, uh, or as certainly people have, unfortunately, they have associations with Satanism. And these are things that I really want to put to rest because I don't think they're they're helpful and I don't think they're true. So the topic of this podcast is what is the difference between white magic and black magic? Now, I say what is the difference between white magic and black magic? Not because I, you know, if you talk to experienced magicians or people who have been engaged in esoteric spiritual traditions or, or serious practices for a long time, you'll never really hear them use the phrase black magic or white magic. They just tend to talk about magic because practicing magicians have more of a sense of the magic being an extension of the human will, right? Magic is just a kind of a shorthand for talking about what you can do when you harness the entirety of the human nervous system towards one goal. So experienced magicians, particularly chaos magicians, don't really divide magic into the, into the there's such a thing as white magic or black magic. They just tend to see it as an extension of human activity um, and they ta- tend to talk about it in terms more like, well, were you doing your true will? Were you, or were you being true to your core self? Were you being true to yourself while you were doing magic in a way? Experienced magicians don't really talk about white magic or black magic, but I want to take that on and, and take this, this phrasing on. What is the difference between white magic and black magic just for the purpose of this podcast? And the reason I want to do that is because that's a question people always ask. You know, if you talk about it, you're into magic, people will often to say, will often say, well, is it, are you into black magic? Are you into white magic? Um, and, and people who don't really know a lot about it will draw those arbitrary lines. But let's take that on. Let's look at that for the point of this podcast. And let's talk about what is functionally good magic and what is functionally bad magic. And look at this, look at the ethics of magic. Because this is certainly the ethics of magic is something I've been very concerned with and very interested in for a long time. You know, I've spent 15 years in the kind of the occult scene, jumping around between different groups, learning from different people, different spiritual traditions, whether those are the hermetic and chaos magic schools or the tantric schools of Eastern mysticism or Sufism or, you know, lots and lots of different uh, Buddhism, you know, lots and lots of different um, ways and models of looking at the world. And from that experience, I've learned a lot of incredible things. One of the biggest one of one of the biggest of which is how differently different cultures see the world, and also how similarly different cultures see the world, and how similar people are once you kind of take away the jargon and the language, and you cut it down to the core of what people are engaging in these practices to experience. I think that across the world, with mystical traditions in particular, people are looking for a transcendent connection to something that's bigger than themselves. You know, they want to be in touch with the good in the universe. They want to know that the universe cares about them. They want to have 
an experience that takes them outside of themselves and that shows them that the universe is a good and loving place, which it is. And some people might call that experience Jesus. Some people might call it Ganesh or Shiva or Hanuman. Some people might call that Buddha or Avalokiteshvara or the goddess. You know, many different traditions have different names for these things. But at the core, people are people. And people want love. They want a sense of security. They want a sense of safety and of being. They want to have a sense of being held by the universe. And this is something that mysticism and magic can show you very viscerally. You know, when you engage in esoteric practices and you access universal consciousness and you learn to still your mind and still your ego and step outside of yourself, really, and you can have a direct experience of this. And this is the real draw of esotericism and mysticism. Um, over um, kind of rote religion because religion tends to give people a, a dogma or a book and religion says this is how it is and if you follow these rules everything will be okay whereas esoteric spirituality or, or, or magic or mysticism says here's a set of techniques that if you do you will have certain experiences and then you can draw your own conclusions, but but it will be from firsthand experience instead of secondhand uh, learning, right? So that's really, for me, the core of magic. And before we get into the question of black and white magic, I really want to ground this conversation in that understanding, right? Which is, magic is a goofy word. It has all these potentially unfortunate connotations, but at its core, what it is, and certainly what I'm trying to communicate by using that word, is that longing, that core longing of human beings to contact transcendent reality, to contact the magical nature of the universe, to contact the creativity and infinite intelligence of the universe, and not just as a new age thing, but as a very tangible, visceral, living experience. And anyone can do that. And there are techniques written down to do that, and that's largely what magic and largely what mysticism is. The transcendent urge to union with the divine in a kind of scientific way. I mean scientific in the sense of a rigorous empirical way of doing experiments and seeing what happens and working at it like any other discipline, working at it like a martial art, trying different techniques, whether those are techniques from books or living teachers you have access to or spiritual traditions that you have access to and trying things and trying things and trying things until you hone down what really works for you, right? Because one thing that I've learned, and one thing that I think that magic is really good at understanding, is different people have different methods. Different things work for different people in different ways. There's not one true path for everybody in the way that religion, and often in some religions, often insists there is one true path to having a transcendent experience. I think that magic is very good at recognizing that people are very, have very different temperaments. Some people, for instance, are very intellectual and 
love to, I mean, really love to study religious books and labor over Kabbalistic texts or translating Sanskrit or seeking out knowledge in books. And they have a basically intellectual temperament, so they pursue spirituality in an intellectual way. Whereas some people are very emotional. They're very emotional, emotionally centered. So they might pursue spirituality through singing and dancing, you know, group singing or kirtan or bhakti yoga, which is the devotional love of God, right? You know, a very deep, emotional, passionate, loving experience of an emotional connection to divinity, right? And there are specific techniques for doing that. Most of them coming from India, you know, under the phrase bhakti yoga. Or some people are very physically oriented, work oriented. And so some people will seek spirituality by doing good works in the world or doing charitable acts or serving the poor or homeless people in their community. And that's what we might call karma yoga. You know, that's called karma yoga in India, which is kind of union by action in a way. Those are just a few paths a person might try many different things, right? Instead of, you know, they might not be a pure knowledge yogi or a pure uh, bhakti yogi. They might try many different paths. But I hope what you're beginning to get from this is magic is not a dogma. It's not a set practice. It's a, a whole grab bag or toolbox of different techniques and tools that different people will gravitate toward to in different ways. So it's just exciting. For me, magic is kind of like stepping into, you know, like a warehouse or a toy store. It's like stepping into a toy store full of all these different techniques and tools from all these different traditions and kind of running around and looking for the things that work for you the best and playing with them and then running off to play with something else. And it's a really exciting pursuit. So that's that's how I look at magic. That's how I approach it. And the core is, what can you do that gets you outside of yourself? What can you do that gets you into an expanded sense of what's possible? What can you do that gets you into an expanded sense of what's real and who you can be and what the universe is, what shakes you up. And that for me is what we should be concerned with doing, which is growing, right? Using different tools and experience to grow as human beings and as spiritual beings and play in the, in the universe because the universe wants us to play. And the universe likes to play with us, not in a, not in a mean way, but in a, in a loving way. So with that ground, let's talk about what is white magic and what is black magic? The description of magic I've just given you is, is, is very lofty in a way. But when people talk about magic, they might get this dark imagery, right? Where they imagine people in robes doing unspeakable rites, <laughs> all of the silliness that we've kind of inherited from Hollywood or the old Hammer Horror movies from the 60s with Christopher Lee. And that's kind of really exciting for some people. But real magic is not like that. So what is white magic? White magic, to take an arbitrary look at it, or the proper use of magic, is kind of what I think I just said, which is magic that bigs you up. You know, magic that 
builds you up, builds up your self-esteem, builds up your sense of yourself, gets you gets you ready to do great things in the world. If you do a yoga practice, for instance, if you go to yoga classes or you do yoga on your own and you feel really good when you come out of it and you have a sense of you know, heightened self-esteem and heightened self-confidence or anything like that, even if it's a traditional ceremonial magic where you're doing invocations and reaching out to different God forms. And when you do a, a invocation like that, if you properly invoke a God form, then you will have a heightened experience of yourself. You will be, you know, you'll have a, an experience, if you do it right, you'll have an experience of unifying with a cosmic principle. For instance, Thoth being the God of knowledge, you know, if you do a ritual for Thoth, you will find yourself unified with the great principle of of knowledge and intelligence in the universe. And white magic has this, or the proper approach to magic, it kind of all is always about getting an expanded sense of the universe and an expanded sense of what's possible. And at the same time, paradoxically, you tend to feel smaller. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You feel smaller out of kind of awe or gratitude or or thankfulness because you have a heightened sense of how big the universe is and how many experiences there are that are out there that are waiting for you to to have them. So I mean you feel a little bit smaller in kind of a you know your ego feels less important. You feel less full of yourself. And that's very healthy, right? A lot of people talk about and I've written about this, a lot of people talk about this kind of idea of destroying the ego or that we should you know constantly be putting ourselves down to lessen our ego so if somebody's uncomfortable with us or our opinions will often say well you have you have such a big ego you know you really need to check your ego at the door well i think that that's a mistake it's a mistake to um try and uh, directly shrink your own ego. I mean, we have an ego for a reason in the same way that we have an appendix for a reason and we shouldn't cut it out. When you do magic in this way, when you do magic to connect to the universe as a living process and you do magic to connect with the trans- transcendental nature of reality, you feel smaller because not because you've shrunk, right? Like you're probably actually growing quite a bit through this through experiences like that but you feel smaller because the universe feels bigger as your sense of the universe widens and gets bigger and bigger and your horizons expand more and more and you see the splendor and the wonder of the universe more and more then by comparison the construction that you call your personality right which is really just a jumble of imprints and conditioning and responses that you've had to your environment in the past and language and cultural programming and social programming you know the thing that you call your personality is kind of more or less a, a robot mixed up of of stimulus responses and when you have these big scale transcendental experiences that show you how big the universe is then your 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 personality just looks smaller by comparison right but that's really good it's really humbling in a good way because it shows you how how much you have to grow right and how you can grow 
and how you can push out of yourself and reach up higher and be more. Because the alternate is in normal waking consciousness, for most people, in normal working consciousness or consciousness as they're going through the day, if you're like me, you're probably stuck in your head a lot of that time where, you know, you're focused on what you have to do that day, your to-do list, your anxieties about the future, your potentially negative feelings about things that have occurred in the past, your anxieties about social interactions with other people or relationships with other people. And so most of the day you're responding to things and then you're, you're stuck in the kind of stimulus response where you, you know, if, if you're at work, you have to respond to the demands of your boss or your coworkers. And if you work on a computer or you're near a cell phone, as most of us are, you know, you're constantly subjected to alerts and emails and, and, and beeps coming at you from your phone or your computer. You know, and then if you're driving, you're just reacting to the road and all of this. So for most of our, most of the time, your focus during your day is put on very small things, you know, things that are where you're, you're stuck dealing with minutia. When you meditate or you do a full scale magical ritual, you're essentially creating a space in which you're giving yourself permission to change your focus for a set period of time to something much bigger. You know, you've, if you've set up the ritual properly, then you've removed all external distractions. You might have drawn a circle and done proper uh, ceremonial procedures and things like these. Um, or, or you're you know, sitting in your meditation posture or, you know, and it doesn't have to be elaborate at all. But you've created a space in which you've said to yourself, okay, in this space, in this set of, in this chunk of time and space I've set aside for myself. I'm not going to be focusing on anything except the goal of my ritual, whether that's to contact a God or simply to focus on the immensity of the universe itself. You know, as, as they say in NLP, you know, your focus determines your reality. So when you, when you give yourself time, space, and a little bit of breathing room to viscerally shift your focus and shift your awareness into into the cosmic or the transcendental or the divine or the spiritual or the numinous or whatever language you want to put on it or whatever specific ritual you might be doing, then, then the working world fades away. And all of a sudden you can have deeply transcendental and, and divine experiences of the conscious nature of the universe or of reality itself or divine entities, perhaps, gods, goddesses, a sense of being centered in your, what you might call your true self, or a sense of being centered in your highest qualities, your sense of love, your sense of gratitude, your sense of compassion, your desire to give to the world, your desire to give back, you know, a sense of deep connection to the people that you love the most, or even a sense of love and caring for the whole universe, for the whole world, right? You know, this is something that the, certainly the magical traditions, but certainly also the Buddhists or Hindus or different magical cultures have been telling us for a long time to remember to focus on the important things in life, you know, in a really big and dramatic way, if need be. So that for me is what white magic per se is. You know, it's setting aside the trivia of our lives 
and taking time to immerse ourselves in remembering this incredible, fascinating, loving, conscious, sparkling, twinkling, playful process that we live in, this gigantic universe that we live in. And, and in a visceral, in a tangible way, you know, that's why I like magic. That's why I like magical ritual, because it's not just a head thing. It's not just, oh, well, I read it in a book, you know, or this book says so-and-so about the universe, or I read a blog post that was kind of inspiring. And so, no, I mean, when you do magic, it's full contact. You use your whole body to understand and enact a principle and until it becomes so real that that's the only reality for you for that set period of time. You know, you're using your bodily motions and your, you know, you might be using a mantra or you might have music going and incense and lights and, you know, artistic creations you've made around you or symbols you've made. You know, there should be something going for all your senses, sight, smell, touch, taste, hearing. You know, it's like you're creating this full on almost virtual reality experience for yourself when you when you do magical ritual to fully enter into and experience either this totality of the universe or one specific aspect of the universe that you you want to engage with so it's an amazing art form and martial art of consciousness in a way you know and it's and when you get good at it too when you when you cut through the jargon and the bullshit, which there's so much of. I mean, you read these books on magic and you wade through all this Kabbalah and you wade through all of kind of arcane theosophical terms or overwritten language, you know, padded out to make the books bigger and more saleable. When you wade through all that, and I love all that stuff too, and it's really important, but when you wade through it and when you get down to actually practicing it, it it'll just click. You know, you get a sense of how easy it is and how intuitive it is and it it should feel natural like a natural extension of your being and it's amazing how i think a lot of people when they start doing magic when they really get into it it's like wow this feels really it's almost like more intuitive and more innate than for instance going to the office and sitting in front of a computer all day long and doing excel spreadsheets that's not natural, you know, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, doing Excel all day or whatever it is one might happen to do at their job. If you're sitting in front of a computer, you know, that's not what people are made for. People are made for running around out in the nature and, you know, fighting and having sex and, and engaging in the deep mythic nature of reality and, and magic and shamanism and ritual have been part of our species for so long, you know, for millennia you know, far, far longer than, you know, the the current big religions, you know, the big religions haven't really been around for very long, you know, far longer than science, which is wonderful. And I think science is the great hope of humanity. You know, I I never want to put science and magic in opposition to each other, because I see science as an outgrowth, you know, pure science, the understand, trying to understand the universe. I see, you know, science was the child of alchemy. And I see science as being a you know, working perfectly in tandem with magic and an extension of the magical process, which is just the great quest to understand knowledge, right? It's just that science is specialized and tends to be focused on the world of matter and material manifestation, right? Whereas magic, you know, ceremonial magic per se is much more focused on the numinous and and meaning, how meaning is constructed, you know, emotions, feelings, subjective experiences of existence, you know, which is totally outside of the purview of, of modern science for the most part. But my point being that, you know, all of our current understandings of reality are are very recent. And when you engage with ritual 
and ceremony and meditation and these kind of spiritual forms. It's like, it's kind of like part of you wakes up and you're like, oh, you know, this is what my ancestors did. This is so viscerally real. And it's like, I understand how to do this intuitively. And it just feels good. It feels like a natural thing that people would do. So that's what I really mean by white magic. And of course, people can do it in groups too, you know, and, and can, you know, build themselves up. And so I look at magic and with that kind of mindset, and I don't like that people make it into an elitist activity. I don't like that people turn it into, make it more complicated than it is, more complicated than it needs to be. Because having traveled within magical cultures like India or Buddhist countries or, uh, you know, Nepal is a great example. If you go to Nepal, that's a country where everyone is doing magic all of the time. You know, in the Kathmandu Valley, which I visited many times, there's this great psychedelic fusion of Hindu cultures and Buddhist cultures and shamanistic cultures, and everyone gets along and everyone kind of shares their gods and all the practices overlap. And it's just this incredible psychedelic city where everywhere you look, there's a statue for a different god where people are putting red paste on it or offering flowers and somebody's doing a ritual here, someone's doing a ritual there. It's like, and you're living in like a a magical enlightenment computer in a way. Everywhere is like a Buddhist stupa or a lot of this sadly was destroyed in in the earthquake, the recent earthquake. It's very, very sad. But when you go to cultures like that, you, you just get it, you understand it. Um, and you also realize that in the West, this materialistic view that, that only what you see is the only thing that's real. And it's just, you know, money is what's real and it's just nihilism and w- whatever you see on TV, that's what's real. And getting a lease on a car, that's what's real. And your job, that's what's real. That's really, you realize the more you engage in this, that that's really a minority view in the world. The magical view or the kind of the magical or pagan view of reality, which I see as just understanding that the universe is alive with meaning and and it can be interacted with directly as a tangible, visceral thing, and that you can do a little ritual to feel good or you can do, you know, say certain things or vibe yourself up to feel good in certain ways or change your mind and and that, that, that things like mastering the mind is really important or meditation is really important. That's we're kind of in the minority in a way. I mean, you know, you think about India as a billion people, right? And then you add all the, you know, I think it, I don't know how many Buddhists are are in the world, but I think it's something like 600, 600 million or something like that. Don't quote me on that, but it's it's a lot. It's a lot, right? And I feel my experience of interacting with people from magical cultures is they kind of see us as a little bit challenged, you know, a little bit mentally challenged, perhaps. Where I think that somebody who has that full spectrum magical take on existence and that spiritual take on existence, I think kind of looks at us as like we're living in black and white, you know? It's kind of like, you know, and I, I love Western culture, so I'm not downplaying at all, but, you know, we lack meaning in this culture. We lack kind of heart and soul. We've got all the external riches and trappings that people from these cultures don't have. You know, we've got, all these beautiful houses and cars and computers and Apple watches and all that. And that's stuff that the average individual in India or Nepal will never have. You know, their dreams are to get American motorcycle and Big Macs and things like that. That's what they want. But 
you go to these places and you realize, you know, it's like, it's like we're Western people are missing. It's like, we're missing this crucial piece of ourselves. You know, whether you want to call it this, I wouldn't call it the soul, but it's like a sense of, it's just a sense of being connected to the universe. And I don't want to put, make that sound too new agey, but it's kind of a sense of being part of something. Western people feel very isolated. They feel very disconnected and and alienated and alone and lonely and nihilistic and they feel like life is meaningless. Whereas for a person from a magical or a, a pagan culture, it feels much more like you feel more like a part of nature. You feel part of something greater, part of a greater whole and immersed in the spiritual process of the universe and immersed in connection and interconnectedness and, and heart. And because of that, and my experiences of traveling particularly, have really convinced me that people in the West are really poor. We, we're, we're, we're in a state of emotional and spiritual poverty because all the riches in the world will, you know, it's like that classic thing, what, what does it benefit a man were he to gain the entire world and lose his soul, right? Because we have all the riches, all the money, all the beautiful things, but we feel empty inside, you know, I think most Western people feel empty and people talk it, you know, you see people talking about this online and on talk shows and in our, in the media all the time, you know, they, they feel this, this void or this emptiness that they had to fill with addiction or acting out behaviors or materialism or never quite being satisfied. And I think that's a state of poverty. That's a real state of poverty. So. That's one reason why I think that magic is something that can be of use and, and a, a, of interest to modern people, despite the fact that it's a little weird, it's a little bit Renaissance fair, it's a little bit arcane, and it feels kind of old. But, you know, magic is, is the Western culture's version of that. Magic is a Renaissance-era word for the hermetic tradition, which was kind of the underground magical pagan culture that was very prevalent in academic circles or the elite thinking circles, particularly among Renaissance thinkers or the early scientists is where the early scientists came out of. People like Isaac Newton or Giordano Bruno. The Western magical or hermetic view was the exact same as what I'm talking about. It's this sense of everything in the universe is connected and everything is alive and breathing and flowing and you know everything is laden with significance and every flower you look at, every animal you see, every bird in flight, every you know, marvelous natural vista you see is, is God talking to you using the language of nature to communicate to you and to the people are in the world to experience the gradual unfolding of their own souls by seeing them projected into, into the world around them, into nature. Right. So we have, the West has its own version of this, you know, we don't have to, you know, it's a cliche to talk about young hippies going on a spiritual quest you know, lefty hippies, you know, they, they're in a, at a lefty college and might smoke too much dope. And then the next thing you know, they're kind of getting into Eastern philosophy and getting into Buddhism, and the Dalai Lama and Hinduism and yoga and all these different things or Native American culture. And that's kind of a kind of a cliche, right? And I'm sure we all know people like that, or we've been that person, you know, I certainly have. But it's, something that people haven't quite realized yet, and they're beginning to realize more and more, is that we don't actually have to look that far. 
the West has its own version of this. It's the hermetic tradition. It's, it's what has been called traditionally magic, right? And I didn't make that word up. You know, I've inherited it. It's kind of unfortunate in a way, but I kind of like it in a way too because it's silly and goofy and, and exciting and suggests power and potential and all of this. You know, the, the magical tradition is our version of this. It's our quest for the, the soul, you know, our own soul or the world's soul, our quest to be grounded in meaning, our quest to be conscious participants with the universe instead of passive observers, our quest to move from the edges of the dance floor, our quest to stop being a wallflower and get to the center of the dance floor where we're right there in the center of the action, dancing with the universe. These things can tell us something about ourselves that we're missing. And not just that we're missing, but that we really have a hunger for. And as a culture that we've forgotten about and pushed to the sidelines and, and said, maybe that's too scary. Maybe I don't want to look at that. And it's kind of like the missing piece, you know, the, the missing piece that we, we need to become whole. And it doesn't have to be, you know, magic by any other name, right? But I, I think a direct engagement with spirituality. So what is black magic, right? Now here's a more sensationalistic topic, right? Is there such a thing as black magic? Are there really evil people out there doing evil deeds and using these forces for nefarious nefarious means to make our investments tank or our our cow stop producing milk or whatever you know whatever it is now before i get into that i really want to get into the the historical context of this question this is something that i've just been researching recently which is really really fascinating and and important has been important for me personally to see which is where this idea of black magicians and witches came from. In Elizabethan England, the, you know, Queen Elizabeth I presided over kind of the height of psychedelic culture of, of England at that time. You know, Elizabethan England was very much like the 1960s, right? Where it was colorful and it was high culture and it's Shakespeare. And there was a sense of magic and the poss possibilities everywhere. And Elizabeth I was referred to as the fairy queen. There was a sense of enchantment about her, like she was bigger than life and there was something almost fairy-like or supernatural about her, Because, she, but she was brilliant and much more educated and smarter and sharper and faster than all of the men in her court and certainly rivaled or was even smarter than most of the top scientific minds of her time. And this was a brilliant, brilliant woman um, and was presiding over a post-Catholic England. This was an England that had split from, thanks to her, thanks to Henry VIII, right, had split from the Catholicism and split from the domination of the church. So after doing this, there, it was like a huge party, right, where all of the liberatory energy and the sense of life and excitement and joy to vive and magic and possibility was really coming out. And it was a party society. And Crucial to Elizabeth's reign also was John Dee, who's really the great motherload of Western esotericism. This is the great magus of Elizabethan England. And, you know, he's the one who channeled Enochian magic and was also very involved in occult activities for the, the throne and occult spying. He was referred to as 007, right? Was it the 007 came from Dee? That was his designation when he was spying for Elizabeth. And, and this was a man who was engaged for over 10 years in contacting angels and having long, complex magic 
mathematical discussions with angels about the nature of reality. And that's a huge topic. And there's an ebook that I wrote online called The Angelic Reformation that's just about John Dee and this period and the magic of Elizabethan England, which, you know, is, very, is short and very cheap. So I recommend checking that out if if you want to know more about this. But the point that I want to impress on you for our purposes here is that Elizabethan England was a high psychedelic, high adventure, high magic culture. Now, what happened was after Elizabeth died, James I came into power. Her successor, James I, was an extreme Puritan fundamentalist. And with every political shift, the new boss has to do away with the world of the old boss. And so James I came into power and got rid of this whole psychedelic magic culture. He printed the King James Bible, which you, I'm sure you know, which is the first mass, real mass printing of the Bible so everyone could have one, which is great, you know, really improved literacy rates and all of this. But in tandem with this, he really cracked down on anything to do with magic. And this is really when the real paranoia about witches started. You know, he was incredibly paranoid that witches were everywhere and witches were out to get him. A lot of people have theorized that this might be because of ergot fungus rot that grew on wheat at the time, contained an analog to LSD. And that basically people were tripping. And so he was probably having a bad trip constantly from eating this infected bread and thinking there were witches everywhere and they were, they were all out to get him. So he really was the guy that instituted that whole witch crackdown, the witch burning thing. And all these you know poor women were, were tortured and imprisoned under this. And, and John Dee was you know certainly defunded and put out to pasture at a Catholic university. And as part of this, there was a real propaganda war. And this is what I want you to understand. There was a concerted propaganda effort to bury magic that is still with us today, to this very day from this time period. So it's from this time that we get, for instance, James funds Christopher Marlowe, you know, who was a rival to Shakespeare. And he has Marlowe write Dr. Faustus right, which is this classic play of the sorcerer that has gone too far and dabbled with dark forces and the devil has come to get them and it's all terrible and dreadful. And that was a parody of John Dee. They implanted this idea into the mass consciousness that, you know, magic was evil and it would come get you in the end and all these dark forces and all of that. And that really cut deep. You know, that's a deep archetype, a deep symbol within Western consciousness. And it's also during this time that there was a guy named Merrick Casalbon who was also employed by James I to discredit all magic or claims of supernatural things or, or cosmic or psychedelic things, you know, directly employed by the crown to discredit all this stuff. So actually, Casaubon, ironically, was the first person to publish John Dee's work in a book called A True and Faithful Relation, but in the context of, you know, look, hey, look at this stuff. This is, look how crazy this is. You know, here's a guy that went too far. It's the classic mad scientist image. You know, this guy went too far in the name of science or the name of magic. But of course, even Casaubon reading Dee's material could only conclude this was a man of true faith, a man of true piety, but he was clearly tricked by evil spirits into dabbling in forces that should not be should not be dabbled with. And thankfully, ironically, that's why John Dee's work survives to the present day. So the, the point is that this idea was deeply embedded in the Western mind that magic is evil, magic is bad, magic will cause you misfortune, that it will lead you into the arms of the devil himself. But that's a political move. 
It was a move to bury the freedom that was experienced in Elizabethan England and replace it with Puritan oppression. You know, I think it's that simple. And I think that a good analogy to perhaps our lifetimes, depending on how old you are, is to think about the transition that happened from 1960s America to 1980s America. Think about the 60s of rock music and Jim Morrison and the Doors and psychedelics and Woodstock and bra burning and all this Dionysiac revelry in the streets and people just going, opening up all the way and having these incredible experiences and also negative experiences and good trips and bad trips and just total chaos, right? But if you think about the transition that happened between there and the conservative backlash to when Ronald Reagan came into power in the 80s, and all of a sudden, America was very buttoned down. And, you know, you think about Michael J. Fox and family ties, that type of thing. And very religious and fundamentalist and the return of the Christian right. And it's swinging back into the control and dogma and patriarchy and all of this type of thing. So I think that's a good analogy to think about this cultural transition that happened but for hundreds of years, magic has been seen as a negative activity, and it's part partly because of this. And magic was incredibly underground and basically non-existent until around, more or less, Victorian England. It was resurrected by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and you know there was a real magical renaissance around the turn of the century. And it's from that that we get people like Crowley and Austin Spare, and... Now, I think that our, our cultural period now might be another real magical renaissance, you know, in the same way that Elizabethan England or the 1960s were, because it's all, it's out there and everyone's talking about it. And so I think that it's time to let go of these negative images or these, these fearful ideas that we inherit from Dr. Faustus, or maybe we inherit from reading H.P. Lovecraft stories, or that we inherit from horror movies or hammer horror because they're not helpful. And what tends to happen is people start to do magic and they can kind of wig themselves out because all these images come flooding back and all these deep-seated fears, you know, that have been embedded in our culture for hundreds of years that are basically control switches put in place so that people don't dabble with it and don't experience that type of radical empowerment for themselves. All of that comes flooding back and all that imagery, you know, those internal representations, you know, combined with maybe guilt or shame or, or religious imprints from childhood, it can all come flooding back. And that can be a really tangible, visceral, negative experience for people. But it's just the imprints, you know, in their own mind, you know, coming back to haunt them in a way, not necessarily any type of external thing. It's just all their negative cultural programming or religious programming returning with a vengeance. But to put all that to the side also, certainly people have used magic for negative purposes. I, I think that anytime somebody uses magic to influence the behavior of somebody else, even if it's positive, we might consider that black magic because you should never try and tamper with the will of another being without consent. If like, especially young people, when they first get into this, will often do things like, well, I'm going to do a spell to get so-and-so to fall in love with me right? Or to get revenge against the playground bully or that type of thing. People find out really quickly that that's very, very unproductive because you get the person that you wanted to fall in love with, you fall in love with you, and then you realize you're miserable and you know, you're know you stuck with this person and they're a total psycho or actually not what you needed at all. So I think that anytime you want to influence the will of another person, that's immediately getting into ethically 
questionable territory, even if it's for healing purposes. You never want to try and tamper with somebody else's course through life because that's their business. It's not your business. So I think that's a crucial distinction. All good magic is magic that you do on yourself, right? It's to big yourself up. You know, my vision of a good magician is a kid who maybe is in a hopeless place and feels that they have no power and no agency and no future, like the Sex Pistols song, no potential of doing anything in their life. And they use magical techniques or NLP techniques and they study it and they, they start to realize that they can change their image of themselves and they can change their image of what the universe is and they can start to build themselves up and build themselves up and build themselves up until they're they really vibe themselves up all the way until eventually they come to this perspective of like fuck like i have total absolute ability to do whatever it is that i want in life to engage in the universe fully you know if i just build myself up and i master my internal states and i you know think like a magician and that means looking at systems around you to understand you know closely examining yourself to see how you work closely examining the world to see how it works so that you can understand the systems around you and know how to work with them instead of against them or against the grain and Eventually, you get to this place of total self-agency where you feel like, yes, you know, I can take on the world. I can do whatever it is that I feel most called to do, whether it's to become a great artist or a politician or, or a banker or whatever it is that you, you might consider to be your you know, golfer, whatever it is that you might consider to be your goal, you know, your true innate talent that you were born with and that your, your mission that you feel called to, but that that suddenly becomes not scary it becomes exciting and it becomes possible, right? And eventually you kind of get to a point where all the magic tools and arcane stuff and the theories and formula kind of fall away. And you realize that they've just been training wheels to get you to a certain point where you have a magical consciousness and you're able to just tackle life from that perspective of magical consciousness. It's like you, that you have the magical ability to flow with reality towards your goal. So. That's that's white magic, and that's doing magic on yourself to make yourself into the best possible version of yourself. And we might consider, for convenience's sake, we might consider black magic to be trying to influence the wills of other people, right, in a negative way, or even in a positive way, without consent, without their consent, right? And A, it never works. B, it tends to just cause suffering for the person who's trying to do that. And C, it's not nearly as an effective approach to life as looking at yourself and thinking, how can you change yourself? A classic example would be the love spell again. If you have somebody who's saying, oh, I'm going to do a spell to get X, Y, and Z to fall in love with me. Well, maybe what you need to do is to take a step back and think about yourself and say, well, okay, A, what do I really want? Am I just fixated on this person because I have suddenly got, you know, like inflamed with lust and I just decided that this is a person that I need in my life? Is it really this person or do I need to think about, okay, what do I really want? What do I, what do I really need from a relationship? Do I want to be in a relationship? And what are my actual goals? What's going to help me grow as a person the most? And then saying, okay, once I have my goal in place, how do I need to change in order to achieve that goal? You know, if I want to 
be in a loving, committed relationship with somebody? How do I need to change so that I'm a loving and committed person? You know, how do I, how do I need to change so that I'm ready for that type of thing? Do I need to set aside negative hobbies? Do I need to set aside maybe negative people in my life? Do I need to change the way I look at myself? Do I need to change my sense of self-esteem? Do I need to really understand, you know, really have a sense of love for myself, right? Do I need to be okay with who I am and accept who I am so that I have love for myself and then extend that into a loving relationship? Do I need to change the way I dress? Do I need to change my hygienic habits? What do I need to do in order to be the person who can be in the type of relationship that I want, right? Because change happens inside first, and then we vibrate to that level of the universe in a way we, the universe matches us at our level. Change never happens by trying to grab something in the universe. It happens by earning it from within. And once you've caused that change within yourself, then the universe tends to match it when you're ready for it, right? Because you could just end up in a committed relationship, but not be ready to deal with it at all. Right. So so then once you have those goals in mind and kind of a roadmap for how you're going to get there, then you can say, OK, well, what type of magic can I do if I need to do magic? You might not need to do magic. What kind of magic can I do to turn myself into that person? So you might want to think about all kinds of techniques. You might want to study the, the magic of fashion and glamour. You might want to study yoga so that you're very comfortable within your own skin, right? Yoga is a great technique for, for feeling really comfortable with who you are. You might want to study meditation so that you cut through the mental noise and that you can begin to get down to the core of what your real desires are instead of just the passing noise that comes through at you from electronic media. And, and your own distracted thoughts. And then you might want to do magical rituals like invoking Aphrodite, the goddess of love from Greek mythology or comparable goddesses from other mythologies to tap into that universal principle of love and affection so that you can understand it viscerally and tangibly and, and it informs you and that you get that. So that's a much better way of proceeding. So again, I keep coming back to the white magic approach because I think that's really what's important to dwell on. But I also want to show you why it's more effective and more useful and a better use of your time, essentially. If you do it the quote-unquote black magic way to just get someone to fall in love with you, then even if it worked, you haven't changed as a person. And you may end up stuck with a person you don't want to be stuck with. You know, you may not have the emotional maturity to be able to handle what your results. Whereas if you take the quote-unquote white magical approach and build yourself up into being the type of person that is ready for that, let me tell you, you're going to have your pick of the litter, right? Because you've changed yourself. Now you're not focused on one person. You're going to have your pick of the litter because you've turned yourself into the person that's going to be ready for that. And there will be abundance of opportunities, right? So because you, you're changed and that change is permanent. It's not, it's not dependent on another person. And I'm, as I'm sure you know, the, the fastest way to kill attraction is to make your life dependent on another person, right? If your whole existence is dependent on one person fulfilling your happiness, unless they're the type of person that wants to get into a codependent relationship with you, which is not going to be fun for you either, then that's probably going to scare people away, right? But you see, if you turn yourself into the type of person that is going to have that type of experience abundantly everywhere around them, then the universe will match you and you're not going to have any problem, right? So that's just one example. So in general, I think that quote-unquote black magical approaches are often about getting one thing. They're very materialistic 
they're very much about seeing experiences, even spiritual experiences, as, as objects that can be grabbed, right? And and in a way, our culture is a black magical culture because we're so materialistic and we just want to grab things and make everything an object and a commodity. Whereas a more white magical approach will always show you that the universe is already trying to give you what you want, if that makes sense. So let's take our love example, right? A black magical approach would be, you know, you're trying to get something, you're trying to take something. For instance, the, the pickup artist guys that were really popular a while ago, you know, that's kind of like a black magical approach to love and attraction because it's, well, I have to do these certain tricks and do these NLP cues and do these type of things to um, get somebody to like me and have affection for me. And it's this materialistic view and this idea of just grabbing and taking. And, but think about this for a second. I mean, you know, we have this overt thing, which is doing a magical action or set of techniques for getting someone to like you. But what's the underlying message you're sending yourself by doing that? If you're telling yourself, you know, I have to do a certain kind of conniving technique or ritual to get love. Okay, that's what's going on on the conscious level. But what's going on unconsciously? What's the message that you're sending yourself, not the other person? What are you telling yourself by doing that? You're basically saying, I have to trick people to like me. You're saying, I'm not worthy of love. You're saying, I'm not, I have to steal love from other people. I have to coerce love from other people. That's what you're telling yourself. And that's a very unhealthy thing to tell yourself. So you can see this whole pickup artist thing. You know, it's really, just as an example, not to pick on one thing, but it's really what people keep telling themselves over and over again, unconsciously, you know, non-linguistically, is that they have to coerce love out of the universe. So they're telling themselves they're unlovable over and over again. And that's a very sad type of thing. Um, as opposed to, you know, look, the universe is trying to give you love. <laughs> you know, if you just stop and slow down and look around, you might see people around you. You might see somebody that's been in your life all this time. You might see somebody that's been in your life for maybe a year or a couple years or more, or maybe just a little while, that is in your life because they want to be in your life. And you might see somebody that maybe you've overlooked. And you might say, oh my God, this person's been here all along and I didn't even see it. And this love has been available to me. The universe is already making love available to me right now, right this instant, you know, and I, and I was too dumb to recognize it. You know, you hear people say this all the time. It happens all the time. I really believe, I know it to be true from my experience, that the universe is constantly giving us what we need and constantly wants us to grow and be happy and is always giving us more and more of what we need in this moment. And if we just calm down a little bit and quiet our mind, and step out of ourselves, like I was saying earlier, then we start to get the message. We start to get the sense of, okay, all right, you know, I see what's in, right in front of my eyes. I see, I feel, I hear what the universe is offering me right now, right this instant. I understand where I am. I understand who I am. And we understand that the universe is constantly giving and giving and giving. And we just have to slow down and accept and learn to accept with gratitude. <laughs>
right? And I know that sounds, it might sound a little hokey. I know it might sound a little new agey, but I really found it to be true. And that's the white magical approach to access, you know, your highest sense of truth, whether you call that the universe or God or infinite consciousness or whatever you might call that, is to slow down, let go a bit, and be humble a little bit and say, okay, what's the message? Show me, help me to get the message. And you can always talk out loud. You can always communicate out loud, whether that's in ritual or meditation or whatever way is best for you. Because I really believe the universe is providing us with what we need to grow in this moment right now. So that's the white magical approach. And you can see, I hope that you can see and understand how more effective that is, how much more effective that is and how much more that builds you up and fills you with self-esteem. I think a good way to pass on the differentiation between these two approaches is I always think of the black magical approach as kind of like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. The black magician is like Gollum where he's clenched down and he's kind of got this warped, twisted view of himself and he sees himself as unlovable. And often magicians will, before they learn to let go, which is critical, Magicians will manifest this type of archetype where even without knowing it. And a classic thing also is, is a magician who hoards all of their knowledge and hoards all their techniques and their priceless knowledge and power. And it's theirs. This is mine. Me, 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 me. This is mine. This belongs to me. Look at all these incredible things I know and all this, this secret arcane knowledge and lore and these incredible rituals I can do. You know, it's my precious, right? You may know people like this. You may have been somebody like this. You know, I certainly have. But when we're like that, we forget two things. One is that the universe loves us and is always giving us what we need if we just know how to receive. The second is that we need to be like conduits. Energy comes into us from the universe and flows outwards. None of us created any of this stuff. We're just passing through this existence. You know, magic is not owned by... Nobody owns magic, right? We're just kind of participating with it and dancing with it in this moment and passing through it. And so let go and enjoy it and enjoy the ride, right? Because life is just a ride. And magic is a particularly fun ride in the, the greater ride of life. You know, it's a fun way to ride life. And don't clench down because I really think that all the black magical approaches, whether it's misusing magic to affect people or simply clenching down and trying to force things to happen, it's, it all comes from fear. It all comes from lack mentality. It all comes from fear that you're not good enough or fear that love is not going to be given to you. And it's all a head trip. It's all bullshit. And in the end, the thing I want, to, want you to remember is it all comes from clenching down, right? It all comes from clenching. And I mean that symbolically, and I mean that physically also. You know, when you're in those mindsets, chances are your body's going to be clenched down. You know, you're, you're going to be hunched over. You're not going to be breathing properly. Your shoulders might be down. You might be looking down. Just learn to breathe and relax. Put your shoulders back. Put your chin up you know, smile a little bit, go outside a little bit and let go and understand that the universe is always working through you 
let it work through you and let go and let it pass through you and don't cling to it. Don't clench. You know, Buddhism is so good about this. You know, they, they're so on point about not craving experiences or not clenching on things. Just remembering that it's kind of a passing magic show. You know, it was another reason that I like the word magic because it reminds us that life is just a magic show and it's got dazzling lights and like incredible adventure scenes and some things that might be scary and some things that might be exciting and warm and wonderful and it's got all of this stuff in it but it's just a magic show and it's just a magic show that's here for us to enjoy and not take too seriously so that's really the the attitude the white magic attitude is just to enjoy it and let go and experience life you know it's just such a beautiful gift you know it's like you go outside and you've got all the magic that you need the whole universe right there before your eyes and if you just let go and you don't clench and you and you open up and you breathe and you smile and the universe will just start working through you and just set your ego to the side and slow your mind down and calm your mind down and just breathe and be magic will start happening all you have to do is become aware of it all you have to do is change your focus put your focus on the magic of life and be thankful and acknowledge it when it happens and don't try and own it don't try and grab it don't try and clench down on it just observe magic passing through you and observe your life becoming more and more magical every day with every passing day with every passing moment and for me that's the the greatest gift you know just to be aware of the magic of existence and what a gift it is you know even the negative experiences because it's often in those that we learn so much we learn so much about ourselves and and we experience so much growth even the most painful experiences can become become some of the most fruitful ones we grow the most out of those if we choose if we meet them with with consciousness and compassion so i started this by just wanting to do kind of like a cut and dry explanation of what white magic is and what black magic is but i think we went on this real vision quest as it were and so what i want to leave you with is i want to say black magic is to try and take something from the universe by some type of technique or scheme or process or try and make somebody else do something by some type of scheme or process which is always to get something for yourself Whereas white magic is to just lay back, relax, and remember that the universe is trying to give you that right now, right here, right this instant, and to allow it, the universe to give it to you and accept it, and to constantly be working on yourself, to better yourself, to expand your horizons, your mind, and to expand yourself into the type of person that is ready to handle those experiences that you want. If you don't have something in your life, maybe it's like what Morrissey once said, which is, you just haven't earned it yet, baby. So, with that, thank you for listening to me on this very experimental podcast. And please visit magic.me, which is M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, which is my school 
for Magic, where you can access a huge range of, of information, video trainings that I've recorded. I spent all day, every day trying to figure out how to improve everything that I'm doing and make, you know, provide better and better experience for you. And there's so much stuff on there. There's courses on Chaos Magic, both advanced and beginner level Chaos Magic, ceremonial, hermetic magic, learning the tarot, learning the I Ching, learning, uh, you know, meditation astral projection, you know, the full spectrum of techniques is represented there. And, you know, I created Magic Me to be the resource that I would have wanted when I started out learning this stuff, you know, having to cobble it together from books, you know, when I was a teenager. And where I had to spend 10, 15 years going all over the world and assembling all these books and putting together the puzzle. With Magic.me, I've condensed that so you can get a full training in, in these techniques within a few hours. It's really a labor of love for me, and I hope that you'll take advantage of that resource, whether you want to learn ritual magic or just to simply learn serious meditation techniques or to learn things like tarot or I Ching so that you can develop a divination system that will allow you to understand decision-making in a deep spiritual way as a guidance system and allow you to move through life that way um, in a way that's informed with wisdom as these systems allow us to do. So that's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K-M-E. Please visit that. Please check out the free lectures on it and definitely subscribe if you feel called to. It's all there waiting for you. All right, my dears, there you have it. That came out pretty well. I think we, it's obviously not perfect audio. It was recorded in with, with really poor audio five years ago, but you know, for a remaster, not bad. All right. Go check out magic.me now for all of the secrets of the universe laid out before your eyes and all of the secrets of manifesting the ultimate, abundant, happy, blissful, joyous life. You think I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not kidding. Look at some of those testimonials. Watch some of the interactions with the students in the course. You will see. And then, lo and behold, see what manifests as you apply the techniques. Until then, I have been Jason, I am Jason, and I will see you in class.